If you have, uh, if you're like me, you like a good series on uh, Netflix or Prime or whatever, um, I I have always been a Star Wars fan. So I actually, I know there's a few of you in here that are as old as me. Um, yes, we're still alive, hanging in there. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember seeing Star Wars in the theater. I was five years old. Um, my parents should not have taken me to a, to a movie like that, but it was so groundbreaking, such an incredible experience um, that I. Never never forgot it. And so if you're not, uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, you should be watching Andor. Um, Andor is maybe some of the best storytelling in Star Wars uh, series history that I know of. So um, anyway, encourage you. If you're not like grown, you can groan now. Uh, you know, you don't like Star Wars. That's okay. That's not actually the point of the, the illustration. <laughs> the point of the illustration is when you watch a new episode of a series you enjoy, whatever that might be, Usually at the beginning, it says previously on blank, 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 and it fills in the storyline because if you just happen to not have watched or it's been a long time since you've watched, you need to be brought up to speed so you can enter into the story. And to get us up to speed on where we are in Genesis, especially if you're new or maybe you've missed a few weeks, um, Genesis began with God creating a good world, right? And human beings made in his image to partner with him and ruling and reigning in that world. Uh, but then we rebelled against God. Things went downhill really fast, uh, so fast that in fact human, humanity was corrupted in its entirety and there was no trajectory but towards more corruption. And so God actually sent a flood, uh, destroyed human life, all flesh. Um, and, but then through that, even through that, had the hope of redemption. He uh, rescued Noah and his family, and through that was, was pointing to a new line of people that he was uh, going to um, work through in a special way. So after this period of uh, creation and then decreation, right, God destroying his creation, he's now beginning again. This is like uh, humanity 2.0. Uh, the bad news is that we're not any better than we were before. Um, the good news is God promises not to wipe us out uh, in one fell swoop. Uh, so today is a new beginning. In fact, uh, when, you're, when you're reading through, studying through Genesis, uh, you'll notice a lot of parallels between this, era, this passage and the next passage in Genesis 9 and Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, in fact, uh, Bruce Waltke in his commentaries, like probably the best commentary on Genesis, he marks out 10 parallels between Adam and Noah. Uh, both worlds are formed from a watery chaos. Both Adam and Noah are associated with the image of God. And that's, it's not like the phrase, the image of God just shows up everywhere. It shows up in chapter one, it shows up in uh, chapter five, and then here in chapter nine. Both Adam and Noah are said to walk with God. Both uh, Adam and Noah rule over animals. Both are told to be fruitful and multiply. Both worked with the ground. Both follow a similar, similar pattern of sinning. Adam's sin was to eat uh, of the fruit of the tree, uh, forbidden tree. Um, at Noah's sin, uh, we'll see next week, was getting drunk. Um, he was like a redneck, ended up naked in a tent. Um, the, both of their sin, interestingly enough, end in embarrassing nakedness. Adam and Noah, uh, both have three named sons. Both sets of sons divide, in, divide sort of biblically into the elect or non-elect, the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. So it's very clear here when you look at this literarily, God is reestablishing a pattern, reestablishing um, his relationship with human beings. And when he speaks of this, when the Bible speaks of this, and even in this passage, it uses the word covenant. 
Now, covenant is, is not a word that we use all the time. I doubt very seriously you do, unless you happen to be a Bible scholar who teaches on covenants. Um, covenants are a foreign concept to us in, in terms of a word, but the, it's similar to what we would say are contracts. And, uh, you know, a contract is like a contract you have when you buy your home. The contract with the bank is that they will lend you money uh, to buy your home, and the your part is that you commit to never miss a payment for the next 30 years, right? Um, you have a contract, you have a cell phone, you have a contract, or if some of you are like uh, my kids, your parents have a contract with the cell phone company um, and you're enjoying the benefits thereof. Uh, but the contract with you, you know, with the cell phone company is you will pay them each month and they, in return, they promise to provide a spotty and unreliable service while they track your every move and sell your information. So that's, that's the promise relationship. Now, a, con- a covenant is like a contract in some ways in the sense it's two parties, but one of the things you see about covenant in scripture is less about like, you lay out your terms that are best for you and we'll lay out our best terms for us. It's more about how are we deciding to live together? How are two parties choosing to relate to each other? Um, and love and sort of affection and the desire for a deeper relationship is always part of it. So scripture points to marriage as a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, not just between two people, but God, where two people before God make a covenant to each other uh, to walk with each other, love each other, serve each other, and to um, you know, not break that promised relationship in their lifetime. And so it's an unbreakable promise relationship between two people is really what a covenant is. And in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, it doesn't use the word covenant, but later on, uh, Hosea, the prophet Hosea, says that God had a covenant with Abraham. or with uh, He does have a covenant with Abraham, that's a few weeks. Uh, he had a covenant with Adam, another A, uh, in the book. Uh, Adam, the, even though a covenant is not described in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God had a covenant relationship with him. He said, you can eat of all the fruit of the trees of the garden. I've given you this wonderful garden. Don't eat of this one thing. So those were kind of the conditions. Conditions, I will walk with you. I will know you. You will know me, but do not eat of this. And of course, uh, we broke that covenant. A lot of covenants in scripture uh, will include sort of um, conditions, not just from God to us, but from um, the, the, the sense of um, emphasize the failure to keep the covenant has curses and woes that go with it. And you'll see this uh, in the Mosaic Covenant. We don't, we're not going to get there in this series, obviously, but in Exodus, when God brings his people out to Mount Sinai, he literally has them stand on opposite hills and declare uh, blessings and woes to each other about God's covenant with them, saying, if you, God is going to do all of this for you, if you'll just be his people, if you'll just walk with him. But if you forsake him, if you forsake his covenant, um, there will be judgment. You do not get to live in a covenant relationship with God, meanwhile going and living with a covenant relationship with the world or whatever you want to do. So in this passage, this, this uh, covenant is called the Noahic Covenant. Um, the conditions we see here uh, are spelled out really from God, um, and then on, on our side there's really just some, uh, not really uh, conditions, but prohibitions. Back in chapter 6, verse 18, God had said, but I will establish my covenant with you. So he's pointing to this, this time in chapter 9, and he says, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and wives, uh, your wife and your son's wives with you. So um, what we'll see in this covenant in chapter nine is uh, the promise, uh, covenant promise, the provisions and the picture. Promise, uh, provisions and picture. I want to thank a friend of mine for that very simple outline. So let's look at the covenant promise here. 
Um, the word ka- berith in Hebrew is the word covenant, and it shows up again and again in this passage. Any guesses how many times it might show up in this passage? Any numbers that have been significant so far in Genesis? Seven. Yes, seven times the word covenant shows up in this passage, meaning God is trying to emphasize and bring a complete picture of this promise relationship. Back in, um, the, but what is the promise involved here? What is God saying I'm covenanting to do? What is the promise? And it is this, if you look back in chapter eight, verse 21, he begins laying these out. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters and flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then it's summarized several other times, including down in verse 16. Now, God's not saying I will never judge. He's not saying there will never ultimately be a judgment of all human beings. He is saying, as of now, as of the way life is functioning, and he says this at the end of chapter 8, there will be seed time and harvest, right? There will be moon, uh, summer and winter. Um, Life is going to continue. I'm not going to interrupt the flow of human life to bring judgment on the earth. Doesn't mean there's not local floods that kill a lot of people. Doesn't mean that uh, they're not even going to happen Um, now or next month or next year. He's just promising that he will not wipe out humanity. Now, why does this matter? Let's assume we we believe that the flood was genuinely real, that it genuinely happened, and that it wiped out a lot of people. You're Noah and uh, his sons and daughters and their, their descendants, immediate descendants. What happens when the sky starts to cloud up? And maybe you get one of those, you know, gully washer, you know, two inches an hour, you know, rain storms. What would happen to you? We would be like, oh, Lord, is this happening again? Is God going to wipe us all out again? Right. What would happen when we get nor'easters coming through here? Right. When, when it just rains and rains and rains and uh, it feels like it's never going to stop. Well, it will. God has promised <laughs> it will stop. We might, the waters might rise, but it will not wipe out humanity again. And the covenant here, it's important, is not just for all human beings. And it isn't just for Jews or for Christians. This is an interesting covenant. It's a unique covenant that God made in that it is not just for his people. It's for all people. In fact, it's for all flesh, all living creatures on earth. In chapter 8, verse 21, it says every living creature. Chapter 9, verse 9, you and your offspring after you. Chapter 9, verse 10, every living creature. Verse 12, every living creature. All future generations. Verse 15, every living creature of all flesh. 16, every living creature of all flesh. Verse 17, all flesh that is on the earth. I think the reason God did this, because he just didn't want it to be like one verse, and they're like, oh, wow, just one verse, we're counting on that? Like, God knows he's talking to people, and sometimes we're forgetful, and sometimes we don't get the point well, and he's like, let me make this super abundantly, overly clear. I'm going to be repetitively redundant in saying this over and over again so that they can't possibly miss the point that I promise they will not die uh, in, a, in a wrath. Now, what's interesting is that it's for everyone, right? It's for good and evil. It is for the unjust and just. It is a unilateral promise of God that you and I are actually still living under today. As much evil as there is on the earth, God has said, I will allow human life to continue for now, right? 
Not necessarily every human being, but the whole of creation will not be wiped out. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course, God wouldn't wipe out the bad, uh, because, bad people because those you know, bad people are kind of in different places spread out or around the earth right now, right? Um, and the problem with that interpretation is that that's not really the truth. Um, I know we all think of places like New York and like that. There's a lot of evil people down there, um, not in Boston, right? But, uh, <laughs> but, but God doesn't see uh, humanity like we would judge. And so we think of like uh, groups of people that are guilty of injustice. Oh, those are the evil people in the world. But, but God has already emphasized, if you remember last week, and I've already read it, God sees the intention of our hearts. So I might be looking across this room, and this is how we kind of look across this room. I see a lot of nice people. I do. I don't see anybody who's trying to murder anybody or destroy the world or, you know, do evil things. But I also can't see your heart. And if your heart's like mine, you kind of know there's some pride in there. There's some selfishness. There's some bitterness. There's some anger. There's some uh, just you want, your, you want it your way, selfish ambition, right? There are all kinds of things in our hearts, and God sees that. And the reason uh, we should be grateful for this covenant is God's not going to wipe us all out, even though, and this is, this is absolutely biblically true, God would be completely just in wiping out humanity again, except for the fact that he promised here he will not. It's his covenant. And so we can rest assured that for now, we're not going to experience unilateral judgment of all human beings, even though we are not sinless before a holy God. So as he withholds judgment, the beauty is that just like with Noah, he offers us a new covenant, a different covenant, a covenant uh, just as Noah was brought through the flood of God's wrath and judgment. Jesus is the new covenant now that as we look to him, we experience all the benefits of what he has done with uh, no uh, conditions on our part other than trusting and looking to and believing and aligning and partnering with God in this covenant. So that's the promise. And interestingly enough, God doesn't tell human beings, hey, you better promise these things. You better do these five things. There's no part to that. There is only the unilateral promise of God here in this covenant. But there are some provisions. That's the second point I want us to see here, the covenant provisions. There's no if-then conditions, but there are some provisions. In other words, this is, um, I have made a covenant, I promise I will not wipe you out again, but life should be like this. God's plan, God's vision for human flourishing comes to the forefront again. Uh, God has decided that whatever mankind does, he won't wipe us out again, but he has given us provisions or boundaries to live under in this covenant um, in a world that is marred by sin. So there's three provisions here. The first one we see is the provision around fruitfulness. And God, it says, verse one, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Verse seven, and you'll be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly in the earth and multiply in it. We heard that before. Yeah, it comes in, in the first part of Genesis. So God is establishing the creation mandate again. He's reestablishing what he had with Adam of saying, you should uh, practice um, multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it. This is the normative pattern that he is establishing for human flourishing. This framework of male-female marriage is still under God's blessing, and God is reiterating it, though... The, the first time he did it, it was, under, uh, at, it was with Adam and Eve in a sinless world with two sinless people. 
But God is in his own way saying, I'm not done with that. Even though you still live in a broken world, uh, the pattern of human flourishing to, to multiply, fill the earth and subdue it is here. So this is God's vision. Now, the, this doesn't happen for everyone. Not everyone gets married, right? Not everyone is even able to have children. And so it's not that God says this has to happen in every person's situation, but that this is the normative pattern for human flourishing under God's covenant. Still the framework that he has for human beings as image bearers to flourish on the earth. Secondly, we see a provision around food. Verse two, he says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every creeping thing, uh, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. In your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that uh, lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. So he's giving animals to eat. This is the first time. This is echoing Genesis one, where he says, I give you these fruit in the trees and the plants. But here he says, I'm giving you additional food. I'm giving you animal life. But there's a limitation, isn't there? It's not just go out, it's a buffet, right? What does he say? (laughs) He says, verse four, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Uh, Just to to pause on, brief comment on that very quickly. Uh, Some of you are vegetarians uh, for health reasons. Some of you are vegans for health reasons. Some of you are under, uh, have convictions about those things. I want to encourage you. This is not a requirement to eat meat. So God, I think God respects your position and, and there's no, like he's not casting shade your way uh, here. Um, And so I want to mention that briefly, but here he is opening up an additional food source at this point for humanity. Um, and he's, saying, he's not speaking, as he says, don't eat meat with its blood. This has nothing to do with how you cook your meat. So I know some of you weirdos like your, your meat well done. You like a steak that's like, you know, same color inside as it is on the outside. Um, I think you should repent of that, but I can't find a verse to verify that. Um, but what he is saying, I like, my, I like my medium rare with some garlic butter and some sauteed mushrooms on top. Mm kind of hungry now. Um, <laughs> when is this guy going to be done? Uh, <laughs> but, but what he's saying is not, not about like preparation of the food. What he's saying is we don't, uh, the, the, the animals in the wild eat differently than human beings. We are to differentiate from all other animals on earth, which kill and eat at the same time. They, they go, there, there is no preparation. You've, you've never watched a Discovery Channel special where there's a lion on the Serengeti that gets an antelope and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, drains the blood, field dressed the antelope, and then takes the piece of meat, roasts it over an open fire while giving thanks to God for providing its needs, right? That's not, that's not what you'll ever see. But we as human beings, we operate different in how we view, because we are not mere animals we are uh we are in the human we are in the physical world we are biologically animals but we are not uh in the same way like animals we are image bearers of god means we we uh, treat things differently what we're going to see actually through the rest of scripture is that this idea of the blood the blood being the life um is used in the sacrificial system this begins to be established that blood must be shed uh life must be given for the atonement and forgiveness of sin. So God is beginning to establish this here and now. But what's interesting is there, there is no other record, ancient record of a similar prohibition. 
So we, don't, we haven't found this in any archaeological uh, societies, cultures we found where it said, don't eat meat with the blood in it. Um, so God clearly is establishing something different and unique here. Um, now, the difference here also is that the food's not going to come easy. So while animals uh, with Adam, you remember what, how Adam related to the animals? What did the animals do? They walked right up to Adam which I'm kind of looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. I want to pet a grizzly bear. I just, I really do. They're so cute and fuzzy. Um, and uh, I want to do that one day. You know, the ones, the Kodiak ones that are like this tall, uh, going to do that one day because it's not going to eat me. Um, but now, what does it say? The fear, right? The fear of them, uh, a fear of you will be on them, right? Um, and so even how we relate now to animals, uh, you ever seen a deer and you're like, oh, what a cute deer. I want to go pet it, you know? It's not going to stand there, is it? It's going to run away. You're, you terrify it. You create fear. Um, and so there's, there's a provision for flesh, um, but we are not required to eat it. And there is an uh, emphasis now that it's not easy to catch. So those are the first two. The third we see is proportionate justice. The third um, uh, uh, provision here is around proportionate justice. Verse 5. From fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Again, we have the, the, the reemphasis of the image of God in verse 6 here. And here we have the, establish of the, princ- the establishment of the principle that, of the, um, what in the Latin is called lex talionis, the idea of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, right? Uh, I know this sounds barbaric to us, right? Um, I mean, we all, maybe you'd heard Gandhi say, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth culture leaves the whole world blind, right? If we're, we're out here doing this. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily like the, the um, vision here, but it's a principle of actually of restraint. And, and when you read this in its context, it's a principle of restraint, not meant to say uh, if someone dies, they must die. If someone kills someone else, they must die. In fact, later on, we actually see in the book of Exodus that God creates um, different uh, levels of, 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 uh, of killing of other human beings, by the way, which our modern culture is based on, manslaughter and murder. Exodus lays this out, not modern law, Exodus. Because God said, basically, if someone accidentally kills someone or kills someone in like the spur of a moment, like they weren't planning to do it, that's very different than someone who intentionally planned ahead to kill someone. Um, and so what you have to read in this context in chapter 9 is back into Lamech in chapter 4, verse 24, who was a son of Cain. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So that was unbridled sin in the world. You hurt me, I'm going to kill you. you. You poke my eye out, I'm going to wipe out your whole village. There is that kind of response in unrestrained sinful human beings. It's called revenge. Revenge never seeks to simply dish back to the other person what they gave you. It is to increase it. And God says you shall not do that. You do not get to murder a whole man's family because he murdered a member of your family. There is uh, the respect for the image of God in all people. Um, and there's an emphasis here on, not on the rights to do this, but on man's responsibility. Look at, um, look at verse 5 again. It says, the, the word require or demand shows up multiple times. And for your lifeblood, I will require, or require a reckoning. And every beast I will require. And from man and from his fellow, fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
So you do not get to take human life um, and, and, and be free. You don't get to take another human being, destroy the image of God, and simply get off. So there's three um, provisions here. And I would say this, while the scripture does not, um, uh, is not requiring this, it is recognizing proportionate justice, um, and it's emphasizing that, that this, is how, this is in the place of revenge. And I know there's a lot of debate around, um, uh, uh, around capital punishment among Christians. Is it justified? Is it unjustified? Is it the best thing we can do? Uh, can it even be administered justly? Which is a good question, even if you happen to agree, which I've run into some uh, deep, well-read theologians who say, like, principally, I believe that it, can, that it is true, but I do not believe it is being justly dispensed in our culture. Um, and so uh, you can have a lot of different views on that. I don't think it's this text is telling you you have to hold somehow to hold to um, uh, capital punishment. So lots of freedom there, but it is saying that the destruction of the image of God does re- require a proportionate response. And so uh, in cases of not capital punishment, um, I think giving someone five years for murdering another human being is not proportionate, Right. Um, we need to be able to recognize the, that regardless of um, who they are, their economic means or whatever, that there is a cost of taking another life. The final part here, so we've seen the uh, promise, we've seen the three provisions, and the final part is the covenant promise. This is why this text is most well-known, right? The rainbow, but um, this is the sign of the covenant. This covenant technically uh, is a, what's called a, a suzerain, suzerain covenant a suzerain covenant, and it is the idea of a suzer or a king and a vassal, a people. And uh, sometimes it would happen when that king conquered a people, but those, either way, those people belong to the king. And in this case, God is the king over his people, his vassal, um, and he is expected, uh, he is promising that I will not destroy you, but his people are expected to keep their covenant bond with him. He protects, provides, and guides his people. His people look to him. And so it makes sense that God would enter into a covenant with his people, um, but, he's a, but he's not like the other uh, suzerain kings that we see in culture back then who were exacting taxes from his people, exacting like it, it was about making him wealthy. God has no need of us, right? So what we see is God actually saying, I don't need you to do a bunch of stuff for me. I invite you to partner with me in this world. Um, and so he doesn't subject his people to slavery like some kings did. He promises to never wipe them out again. Uh, and to do this, to, to establish this covenant, he creates a pictorial reminder, right? A pictorial reminder of the covenant, one that um, is not just for those that can read or those that have privileged space to, to be able to see something, but those that would see every time a rainbow happens in the sky, it is God uh, re-displaying uh, his covenant promises to us now there's no uh there's there's something that was like oh this is when god established the rainbow and i'm like there's nothing in this text that says the rainbow didn't exist before he just says now this rainbow in the sky is has a purpose a purpose beyond being beautiful after after it rains it is a reminder of god's covenant faithfulness and so a covenant another covenant um symbol that we use are, are wedding rings right this this ring is not my marriage but it is a symbol that uh, when I got married to Teresa, we, we made a commitment, a lifelong promise relationship. And so what, is, what it's there for is both so I see it 
It's not that I forget that I'm married, which is, by the way, like it sounds like this text, God's like, oh, I'll remember that we have a promise relationship. You're like, that doesn't sound very reassuring. Like God like, oh, dang, I forgot I was getting ready to wipe them out again. Then I saw the rainbow, you know? Like, no, no, that's not the text. This text is like my wedding ring. I never, I never forget that I'm married. I don't. But sometimes I'll look at that ring and remember my vows. I'll remember the promises. I'll remember that relationship. Um, and it will come to my mind. And so this is the way it works in this passage. God says, I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and uh, the earth. Uh, it's interesting, many scholars have speculated on this. It, there's no way to really establish if this is what was meant here, but it's possible that um, this word bow is not really just rainbow. It literally is the word bow that's used for a bow and arrow. And what would happen is uh, when a, a warrior king had uh, won, uh, finished his battles, he would hang his bow up over his mantle. Uh, to just kind of as a way of saying, I'm not fighting. I'm not at war right now. And so some theologians have speculated this is God saying, I'm not at war with all of humanity. This bow in the sky is the sign that I'm not at war uh, with my people. Notice for whom the sign is for. Uh, it's for God. As I said, verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow, bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. And so this, this is a reminder for God, but also is meant to be a reminder, it says literally for all flesh, all creatures on earth. Now, I don't know if deer look up <laughs> and see a rainbow and think, Man, it's good. We're not going to drown today, right? Um, but, but it is meant as a sense, as a covenant, whether they're aware of it or not, whether any human being is aware of it. And I would argue right now there is much confusion about what a, what a rainbow means, right? It's not a symbol of a covenant with God. Um, and so I would argue that like, even if people are confused, it does not change God's position. God has said, I've established this. This is what it uh, symbolizes. And what's interesting, we don't look to a rainbow as Christians as a symbol of God's covenant to us. We, uh, there, it's interesting that it's not really ever established as the symbol of the covenant um, with Jesus, but the cross is held up as something we look to, to remember what Christ has done for us. We look to the cross and remember that God has made great and extravagant promises to you to forgive your sins, to cleanse your sins. And so one of the reasons the, the cross is not just for new Christians, the gospel is not just for people to, to hear the first time and believe and come to know God. It is for every Christian to be reminded because we forget. We forget that God loves us. God, we forget that, that God is not waiting for you to get your life together so you can have a relationship with him. He loves you as you are. He loves you with your brokenness, your pain, your, your bitterness, and he wants to heal you from that. He wants to bring you out of that. And so we look to the cross to remind us of John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Do you see how that's a promise? That's a promise. And the condition is God's son dying and the granting of eternal life through that. That's God's part. And what does he say? That whosoever believes. God doesn't even place conditions on our covenant. The only, the only curse is for those who would forsake it. 
who wouldn't look to it, who wouldn't uh, live in it, who would not walk with their God and experience new life in him. The sign of the initiation into the covenant is baptism. And the interesting thing about baptism, it has nothing to do with how good or bad you were. It doesn't. You're not saying, I was the worst person in the history of the world, you know? I baptized, uh, uh, baptized my kids when they were um, fairly young. Neither one of them had been a drug dealer. Neither one of them, I'd never uh, gone and picked them up from jail, never lived a wild life. They've walked with the Lord. And, and, and yet being baptized was their way of saying, I identify with this covenant. I'm, I'm laying claim physically. This is the symbol of me laying claim to Jesus because he's laid claim to me. So if you've never been baptized, don't worry about whether you, you've walked with God or you, whether you've wandered a far long ways. That, again, we're missing the point. The covenant is not about you. You remember? God's not saying there's no conditions to the covenant. Whether you have walked with the Lord or not, he invites us all to receive and to be, embrace him through baptism. And this, for those who have done that, the ongoing marker of this covenant and symbol is communion. It's the taking of the bread and the cup. Even Jesus himself reiterated that to us. The literally just the rain, like the rainbow in the sky, except we physically get to take it. Matthew 26, 26. And following, he says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my, the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of, again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And so today, whoever you are, the, there's, there's really two steps for you. Um, if you're not a Christian, your step is, is laying claim to this covenant that God has promised you, has offered eternal life to you, and that you can receive that, you can look to him, and it quite literally is throwing yourself onto the mercy of your king who invites you in, not as a, 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 a sort of a servant, but as a son or a daughter. And then for those who are Christians, today is a reminder of your covenant. We gather to remind ourselves of this covenant. You are taking the bread and the cup as the physical reminders of the covenant that Christ has made with you, that you are fully, freely, and forever forgiven. Celebrate that today. Take a moment if you need to repent. Take a moment if you need to confess something to God. If you are not reconciled to someone in the room, don't, don't take communion. Go get that right. Go take communion in joy. God doesn't say, hey, come to me. Come to me, take communion, be miserable. No, he's saying, come, enjoy. Would you, on Christmas Day, if you were given the greatest gift you'd ever imagined in your life, would you be like, oh gosh, okay. Open it gently. When you see what it is, would you be like, oh, yes. Mm. How would you respond to the greatest gift you've ever been given? With joy. God is not reluctant. God is not, uh, does, does not wish he hadn't done this for you. He sees you today. He loves you. He invites you to come take communion with joy. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then we can respond together. God, we thank you uh, for the covenant that you've given us, God. First, for covenant with Noah, promising that 
today, even today, we live under your common grace, that you will not wipe us out, that you are patient, you are enduring with much patience, all of us. And yet you invite us into a covenant with your son, the human being who came and perfectly fulfilled the law, who bridges heaven and earth, who was the perfect partner with you as he lived in this world. And when he died, he was able to take all of our sin on himself to seal once and for all the covenant you have made of redemption and forgiveness of sins. So as we take the bread, we think of your body, Jesus, broken for us. As we take the cup, Jesus, we, we drink it knowing you have paid the price. We thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.